expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Well, we've made it to episode 98 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. We, I, mean, I look at that eight, and it makes me think, you know, it's it's crazy how many how often in nerd culture that rings have all the power. Yeah, okay, here's a question. If you were to be a lantern, what color ring would you want? Uh, my wife would probably say red because she thinks I lose my temper too easy. <laughs> <laughs> see, I've never seen, see, see, I've never seen you lose your temper, but the times I have, I'm like, oh, well, shit. I, that is kind of, that's the way I kind of feel. When it, when it goes, it goes. So, yeah. I mean, I could see that. I don't know. Um, like, personality-wise, let's do, let's do personality, then let's do, like, what you would choose. I would probably choose green. Okay. Only because I, I I think that that suits me. Yeah. But personality wise, ah, geez, I don't know. Uh, That's a tough one. Yeah. Blue maybe. Blue or maybe like a sapphire. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I'll take that. Well, what would you do? What would you do? What What would you choose first? Ooh, what would I choose first? I would choose. I mean, green's always green, but dude, I'd go yellow. All right, I could see that. I, I I'd choose yellow. And then personality-wise, I think probably be end up being blue, mostly because just the you know it's the compassion side. It's yeah. It's you know and stuff like that. But that's pretty much it, man. That's that's pretty much it. But you know, speaking of power, of course, we had on Joe Henderson from Lucifer last week. And dude, did you watch this week's version of Lucifer? Oh, I did. Yes, it was phenomenal again. Like it was just great. Like this is honestly one of the best shows on television. I agree, and I mean, I know that they had a little bit of a ratings dip in the second week. I don't think that really matters that oh. much. I think kind of everybody did. You know, you had the Iowa caucuses going on, and people are actually paying attention a little bit more. So I'm sure that drew some eyes away a little bit. But I mean, it's just Fox on Monday has been phenomenal. Actually, we're going to be talking about that coming up on uh, this week in Geek Tame, and we're going to discuss Lucifer and the X Files. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's gonna be fun because you know X Files is underway as well, and I'm somebody who has never, I've never watched the X Files up until the tenth season, which is the one that's airing now. So it's gonna be kind of interesting. I know you've you've watched them too, haven't you? Yeah, like, I mean, I stopped at a certain point, like yeah. when David Duchovny left. I gave the new guy kind of a chance. I'm like, ah, this sucks. I'm not watching this anymore. And then I kind of got back into it a little bit when he came back, but it wasn't the same. So I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit, and maybe we'll talk about, hey, is this for somebody like you, is this a good jumping in point? Are you okay to jump in here? We'll get into that coming up in this week in Geek Tamer. Yeah, especially, you know, uh, someone who hasn't read it or, or read it but watched the show, it'll be an interesting topic to discuss. But, you know, something I, I jump into, of course, is video games, as we both know. Definitely. And, you know, so Saturday, uh, I was sitting at home. I'm like, you know, I want to go play some games. Where can I go? You know, what do I want to play? I said, I want to play. Galaga and Pac-Man. I said, well, what's the one place I know that has it? I said, Dave and Buster's. Of course. So I get in my car, I drive to Dave and Buster's, and I get my card, and I'm frantically looking for the cabinet. Like, I'm looking for I'm like, oh my god, it's not in this place where it's always in that spot since they opened. Where is it? Where is it? Oh my god, I can't find it! So, I go up to the front where the, you know, the entrance is, and there's a bunch of people out there, they had a bunch of parties there on Saturday, and I see it, and 
the cabinet, the top part of it, the front, it used to say Pac-Man Galaga. It's like side by side, but right. it doesn't say that anymore. I remember, it's like, yeah. It's like Pac-Man Party something or whatever. Yeah. So I go, oh, cool. So I got my card out. I'm like, oh, damn it. This is out loud, too, but I go, damn it. It's cash only. Oh, that sucks. Then I turn around and I see, you know, you can look at somebody's face behind you and they're kind of looking at you like, you're in the, you're the devil. You're going to go to hell. Yeah. I look down and I see that it's cash only because it's there to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. So I didn't play because uh, I didn't have cash on me. Don't think because. I don't bring don't, cash to Dave Buster's either. Honestly, but, I mean, I'm right there with you. I do not bring it there. I mean, don't, I don't want people to think that. You know, I didn't bring, I didn't play because I don't care about Timmy and Jennifer going to <laughs> camp. You know, unintentional, unintentional <laughs> douchebag. <laughs> be like a funny, like, short bit. It's unintentional douchebag. <laughs> Copyright down in early 2016. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I felt like shit. I'm well, like, I get it, man. I... I'm like, I'm like, I want to play Galaga, but I just don't have the money. And I'm like, but in a sense, I'm like, of all the games, you had to like take the one that I wanted. And what are you going to do? Beg for change to give to the Make-A-Wish Foundation so you can play Galaga? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) What's ironic is I don't think, if I'm thinking back, I don't think Dave and Buster's even has a place. You know, in arcades, you usually have the place, you know, you put your dollars in or whatever. Yeah, the coin. Yeah. They They don't have that tokens or they don't have that. that so what are you supposed to do go across to barnes and noble and try to get Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah hey i hey i'm sorry i'm not gonna buy a book but can you uh you know exchange some you know give me some currency if i you know give you my debit card uh you know some kids with cancer kind of need to go to camp over the summer and you i need turn- to play galaga and that's the only way <laughs> by playing the galaga gives them hope you turn the guilt back on them wouldn't you like to help the Make a Wish Foundation and let me yeah. play video games. Not only that, but wouldn't you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you like to, to eat ghosts and save kids with cancer? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, what, what's better than that, really? I know. Think about that for a second. Come on now. But that's going to do it for our intro. I feel like a dick. Come up next. It's what we're reading. Stay tuned. More down nerdy. Come up next. This is Joe Henderson, showrunner for Lucifer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, boys and girls, where we go out and get our long boxes and we discuss what we'll win this week. So be very, very quiet. We're going to review some comics. Of that, was course, like a, that was like a cross between Elmer Fudd and Jerry Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, ladies. Uh, if, Jerry, if, if Elmer Fudd was trying to help kids with mu- muscular dystrophy or something. <laughs> Elmer, can you imagine, like... Okay, Elmer Fudd, do, he's on the, the telephone, the telephone. Elmer Fudd's going to shoot targets for cancer or for muscular dystrophy. <laughs> and miss, because Elmer Fudd might as well be a stormtrooper. Each, each, each target represents a $10 donation. <laughs> <laughs> Wabbit season, duck season, fire! <laughs> <laughs> muscular dystrophy, fire! <laughs> but, as always, this segment was brought to you by the five folks. This is fucking weird. Um, hi, folks, over at Fantasy Escape Comics and Cards on Aragorn Boulevard in Virginia Beach. Go see Bob and all the great comics he has for yourself and the nuds that you love. With that being said, <laughs> I think I'm wow. going to go first this week because I think you need a second. Intro ever. Yeah, I think you need a second. So I'm going to go first this week. And. <laughs> 
I, I kind of want to say I'm in familiar territory, but I, I just can't let this go. I, a new Tomb Raider comic is out by Dark Horse, so once again, here I am reviewing Tomb Raider number one, which kind of has the subtitle Spore, but that's not on the on the front cover. And it's Tomb Raider number one, not out yet by Dark Horse Comics. Okay, the script is by Markio Tamiki, proud of me. Line artist by Philip C.V., colors by Michael Atea, and lettering by Michael Heisler. Okay. Okay, now this is supposed to take place apparently right after... Rise of the Tomb Raider. So, but the good news is, is no spoilers here. I think Laura Lives is not a spoiler, okay? So, yeah. Laura is, uh, you know what they're doing in comics now? And they, I think this kind of started almost with Batman Eternal in, in, the, in the modern comics anyway. Where they'll kind of show you an a, 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 you know, a little picture of the aftermath. Yeah. What the, story, the aftermath of the story is going to be. And then they jump into where we started. That's kind of the way this book starts. And uh, a little bit of a rough go for Lara in the beginning. But then it's kind of funny for anybody that loves uh, Tomb Raider and Lara Croft because there's a panel of her all dressed up in, like, businessy type attire. Okay. It's hilarious. If you like <laughs> Tomb Raider and you know Lara's personality, it's hilarious because the facial expressions that the artist gives to her, she's annoyed. Yeah. She doesn't want to be in this. She's annoyed, and, and it's not supposed to be funny, but it really is. Was she going to a Hillary Clinton meeting? <laughs> no, she was going to a lecture, though. So oh. it's like an archaeology lecture, and, you know, it's the whole, I don't want to be here kind of thing. Was she, so she, Was it pantsuits around the world? It was a pantsuit, actually, which is oh, funny. Oh, shit! <laughs> <laughs> and they show her, like, stripping in the bathroom because she doesn't want it on anymore once they finally decide to get out of there. and uh, It's very interesting because once she does that, she goes to do uh, fight training. Because yeah. she feels like she needs more fight training. I don't want to spoil this because it's a nice little nugget of the story. Who she trains with, it's funny and interesting to me. But there's a reason that she does it. And I kind of like how they how they go along with that. It's it's kind of Star Wars A New Hope-ish. Okay. But not exactly. And when, when you read... Because I don't want to spoil it because I want, I want people to read it and I want you to see what I'm saying. So I won't spoil it. And uh, I'll let you discover that when you read this comic. But she's also being trailed by this weirdo. And she's not sure, you know, can I trust what this guy's saying? Do I really want to listen to this dude? So she decides to follow him, and that's when everything kind of starts to hit the fan. And it turns out there's a certain artifact that she's looking for. I don't know if it's an artifact or an episode of Iron Chef, but it's a mushroom. (laughs) Okay. Okay? And there's something really weird with this mushroom. Again, can't give it away because it's a major part of the story, and we don't like spoiling stories here. I know how it ends. She takes the mushroom, goes to Woodstock, and plays the American National Anthem like Jimi Hendrix. Well, either that or goes on Iron Chef. I mean, I guess either way, you can can figure out a way. But she tries to find the secret behind this mushroom, and let's just say that's when the story kind of gets interesting. So I will say this about it. Of all the Tomb Raider comics that I've tried to get into, and I know that they just had one run end this past week, this is probably the best that they've done so far of the Tomb Raider comics that I've read as far as giving you an interesting story and giving you something that you actually kind of feel is going somewhere. Right. Like the first one I tried to read, it was just weird. The second one I tried to read, Frozen Omen, just didn't catch me. It was a little boring. And I just, I just couldn't get into it. I know some people liked it, and, and maybe people will hate me for this, but I just didn't think it was a good comic. This one actually has a good story that's leading somewhere. The art, even though you've got different artists working on this, which is weird, it's pretty consistent, actually, with what you've seen from Tomb Raider comics so far. So if you've read Tomb Raider from Dark Horse, it's actually pretty consistent. But the writing, 
by Markio Tamiki. Very, very clever, witty, brings out that side of Laura that I feel like has kind of been lost in these other comics. So I think that, that th this was actually pretty good. I'm going to say this is just short of a pull for me. I'm going to give it a pickup because I do think there were a couple things that I wasn't totally thrilled with. I think it dragged a little bit in the middle. So I'm going to say pick up, but this could very well be, this is one of those things where the, by the next issue, if it goes where I think it's going, this is going to be a pull for me. So this is a pickup barely, but reaching right for that pull area. That sounds great, man. So, I mean, it's one of those books that, you know, you start off and it's just, it's, it's very awesome to see those types of stories where they're so good, but then it's just a, that, that one little speck from it being great. Yeah, and it, it was funny because when I was reading it, I'm like, please be good. Please yeah. be good. Please be good. I want a Tomb Raider comic that I'll actually like. Please be good. And it was, so I'm pleasantly surprised. Well, you decided to go after artifacts. I decided to go to New York City in the 1970s because... This week, I read Shaft, Imitation of Life, of course, from Dynamite Comics. Now, here's the thing. David F. Walker is the writer, and Dietrich Smith is the artist. Now, here's the thing. When you think of Shaft, a lot of people, mostly recent people, like people about my age, are thinking of the Samuel Jackson Shaft. This is the Roundtree 1971 yes. Shaft. Yes, excellent. This, this is the 1971 New York where there's porn theaters on every corner. There's, there, I'll tell you right now, they are not shy in this comic with the racial slurs and the homophobic slurs. Wow. I'll tell you that right now. Well, like, I mean, it's it, sign it's, of the times, man. It's oh, Exactly. It's like, and here's the thing is that when you're reading this, if you're somebody who's our age even, You'll think that how they're talking is cartoonish, but really, if you think about it, that's how people talked back then. Like, I, I got to ask you this one filter. thing. I got to oh. ask you this one thing. What did did the words "jive turkey" make an appearance? No, they did not. Ah, maybe next issue. Maybe next issue. But anyways, the way this is is pretty much Shaft has been out of the private investigation life for a while now, and the way it opens up is pretty much it's a. It's not a, a an origin story or origin telling. It's kind of like him reviewing his life of like how he, you know he was in Vietnam and how what it was like when he shot his first people. And so like taking inventory kind of thing. Yeah, he's pretty much just picking pieces from his life and everything else, and and, and just telling people he's pretty much setting up how he got to where he is today, where he's kind of like he's got a longer beard and stuff like that. He has oh, big, cool. He's, okay. he's he's unkempt, you know, unkempt. So I mean. Uh, it's pretty uh, interesting. Now, the artwork, I'll say, is it's really good. Uh, the only problems with the artwork is that there's a few panels back to back to back where it's him firing a gun, but it's a uh, it's kind of, it's a it's a two shot, it's a wide shot, mm -hmm. and it looks kind of uh, it doesn't look the best. Like especially within the blood splatter, it doesn't look the best. It looks more like uh, you know how you had that red starburst that says "pow" in it. Uh. Picture that without the word POW. That's what it kind of looks uh, like. So it's almost like if you took a low-resolution image and you tried to zoom in. and yeah. it, The more you zoom in, it pixelates and the art quality kind of goes downhill. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Okay. But the, the thing is that this is – I mean, they really get New York City the way it is and the, the way it looks like. The art, for the most part, except for those three panels, is really good. Um, and again, it details with him being – you know, having this, this family coming to him and – saying, you know, you're the only person that will take on this case because for this reason with our son. Now, I'm going to say what it is because you can guess what, where I'm going. The reason why nobody else will take this missing person's case is because their son is gay. Ah, okay. And it being wow. the 1970s. 
Dealing with you a know, lot of issues here. <laughs> a lot of issues. You know, so Shaft has to, you know, the entire time, you know, he's, he's saying certain slurs against gay people, which is like, you know, again, it's the time. So you're well, like, yeah. you know, so he's going to certain establishments and everything else, trying to find this kid. And let's just say that there's more to the story that's being told. And it's pretty much him, the entire first issue is him pretty much saying, what the fuck am I doing? Why am I doing this case? I don't give a fuck about this kid. You know, I don't care at all. Why am I doing this? You know, what the fuck do I care? You know, it's just one of those things where it it really is a a book that's about the moral complex of of a person, especially if someone was a private investigator or a cop in the 1970s. And... Like I said, they really captured the 70s New York really well just with the look of it, the way the rooms look when he walks outside, uh, all the lights, the way the lights are and everything. And like I said, they're not shy to go full out how people talked in the 70s, they're not shy with the whole actions, with the scenes of what things looked like in the 70s. And, you know, this is, a, this is a, a, all warts pretty much of that era, and I See, love it. See, that's great because I, I like it when a, when a book is unafraid to – show you what it was like back then. I mean, it's, it's such a PC nature in our world right now, so to, to get something that's biographically accurate like that, that's not afraid to show you what the sign of the times were, I think that that's really cool. So did that lead you to kind of like the story more? Is this kind of more of a pull for you then? Well, here's the thing, though. I haven't really known much about Shadow. I mean, I saw the Roundtree, of course, movie from the 70s, and I've seen the same old Jackson stuff. Other than that, I haven't really paid much attention to Shaft, so it took a little bit of time to get into the story. Right. Um, but I mean, he's got like, I, what I love about Shaft is he's one of those guys where he fucking bluntly tells you what's on his mind. He has no filter. For example, he's walking out of this, this gay bar with this guy who's kind of like being an informant a little bit for him. And of course, being the seventies, this group of guys says, Oh, there's a couple of, uh, you know, of, of gays walking down this thing and, and they're making fun of him. And then Shaft just goes, we ain't lost. We just finished getting head from your daddy. And he goes, no, I'm not joking. Your old man's got a deep throat. Oh, dude. And I'm like, oh, shit. Whoa. (laughs) And then, of course, a fight breaks out between him and the guys. I can't imagine why. But it's great because it shows like why and how he got his personality, like with him yeah. going to Vietnam, uh, him fighting as a as a kid and everything else. It's all he's known for wow. to do. And this is uh this is a pull for me. I was gonna give it a pickup because the story took a little bit to get into it, but at the bottom of the you know, at the end of the day, this is a thing of like, you know, you see him towards the end of the issue kind of coming to terms with, you know, I'm comfortable with what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And even though there's still a little bit of, you know, hesitation it's it's a great complex character driving story about Shaft himself. I can dig it. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> You're just but, like Ed and Sing. Just be grateful. I'm grateful. Be grateful. I held it back. I'm grateful. But that's gonna do it for what we're reading this week. But coming up next, it's this week in Geek Tainment, and man, we have a double dose of Fox coming up with our reviews of Lucifer and the X Files. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy is coming up next. Hi everyone, this is artist Nicholas Scott, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, we've been saying it for a couple weeks now that Fox owns Monday Night right now, and should be no surprise, we're going to talk about both of the shows that are on Monday nights on Fox, starting at 8 o'clock with The X-Files, 9 o'clock with Lucifer and Nick. I gotta tell you, man, it's been a while since Fox has really owned a night, and it took nerds to do it. Well, I mean, here's the thing. You know, I haven't watched The X-Files ever up until season 10 was released, which, of course, is the current run they're doing right now, which I believe was, what, like an eight-part? I think it's six, uh, actually, because everybody's been complaining. Yeah. 
But uh, I mean, this the way I'll say this as somebody who hasn't watched the show, or like I said, I've read a couple of the books that were just pretty much really just book versions of certain episodes. Mm-hmm. I love how in the beginning of the first episode of this season, they pretty much have David Duchovny do a voiceover where he de- pretty much describes and wraps up everything or close to everything that's happened within the first nine seasons, or at least the first five when he was on there. Yeah, I think that was smart because, I mean, think about it. This is, you know, you're trying to bring a whole new generation into the X-Files. And I know with Netflix and Amazon Prime and all that stuff, you can watch older seasons of shows now, so you're not totally oblivious to what's going on. But, I mean, nine seasons is a lot, okay? So you're not going to watch nine seasons. I don't care how long you have. I don't care how much time you have in your hands. You're not going to be able to watch nine seasons. So I I agree with you. I like that they wrapped it up. Uh, David Duchovny did the voiceover and kind of brought everybody to the present. And I like the fact that you don't need to be somebody who watched the original series to like this show. And one more thing that I really love before we kind of dive into it. Yeah. And you touched on this on Twitter. They used the original opening for yep. the show. They that used, was so smart. They used the original 1993 television opening, which was great. It was great. And I, and I mean, it, it brought back the nostalgia for those of us who watched the show before and it, it just added that another mysterious element, I think, for people that didn't watch the show because they're like, why is this old? Why does this look different? It's that conspiracy type vibe, you know what I mean? Well, it's also the fact that they want to, they realize a massive group of their fans and people who are going to be watching are going to be people like yourself who watched the series back when it was in inception, oh, definitely, back yeah. in the early 90s. And like I said, the reason why I didn't get into it was because 93, I was like, what, five, six years old. So I didn't know about the X-Files. You know, I was more addicted to Power Rangers and stuff like that. Yeah, you wouldn't have been able to appreciate it at that age anyway. So, yeah, it's okay. But, (laughs) I I mean, going based on just the pilot alone, what we find out in the pilot uh, is pretty much – I was one of those people who are like, okay, am I going to go back on Netflix or Hulu and watch the X-Files from its beginning – and then they, there's something that's discovered in the pilot where I'm like, well, I don't really need to do that anymore. Nope. And it wasn't in the monologue. It was actually like closer towards the middle to the end of the episode. And I'm like, I don't need to go back now and watch this. And you know, and that's the thing. As I, you know, that's the only downfall of it. I'll say if there is one. You know, it's funny. I was when I was watching the pilot, and uh, and it went, kind of went on, and they kind of revealed what was going on. Remember that scene in My Cousin Vinny? Where Joe Pesci gets up in front of the judge and he says, everything this guy just said is bullshit. Yep. Remember that scene? So when Mulder kind of, you know, when the conspiracy theory starts to unravel and and basically Mulder's like, everything that we've done the last nine plus years has been a complete smokescreen. That's what made me think of that. (laughs) Wow. So basically what you're saying is we're kind of starting from scratch for real. And I actually... And, and I could have been mad about that as somebody who, who was a fan of the original series. It's easy to be mad at something like that, but instead I went, huh, how about that? That's well, interesting. Well, because it's one of those things where it was a twist that where, I mean, it was one of those things where you could have seen it was going there. But even when it did, it kind of surprised you a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Um, I know I'm farther into the season than you are, but there's an episode, which is the third episode, and... Uh, one of the things that a lot of people I haven't seen a lot of complaining about, but it's it's deals with a monster. I'll say that, mm-hmm. and the monster is all practical suit everything. 
And I'm not going to lie, I kind of appreciated that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I do too, because that's kind of what the original series was based on, yeah. mostly. Especially, I mean, again, like you said, think of the times. But I think for a show like X-Files, you have to have that authenticity because it's important to drive the story forward. And if we've got too much CG, like a show like Sleepy Hollow, you can do CG for that because it's not based on, you know, I'm or not saying, flash. yeah, and I'm not saying that X Files is based on historical events or anything like that, but it's it's a different vibe, you know, it's a different world. You're you're trying to say you're trying to go real life here, and you know, do aliens really exist and monsters really exist and stuff like that. So I think if you're going for that and you're going for a, like a serious type vibe. You need practical effects. Yeah, and I think part of it that is that Fox realized they needed to, they wanted to stay within the realm of the 90s. They wanted to stay with what made it great. You know, it's, it is, you know, hey, here's a monster of the week kind of thing or whatever, but let's put a guy in a suit. You know what I'm saying? Let's not make it CG. Let's, and, you know, up close it looked nice, but of course when they run away, you're like, oh, that looks like a, like it was just, you could just tell it's just a suit. Um, but I mean, no, I, I kind of, I dig this. I really dig what they're doing to company and, and Jillian Anderson. I mean, they really feel like you want to talk about a duo that's been away from each other for years and then they've come back and they've just hit it as if they never left, you know? And it's funny how the way that Jillian Anderson is playing such a cold fish with, with Scully right now, at least in the first a couple of episodes, I like the vibe that they're going with. It's like... She never left the character, yeah. you know, and she never left the, and she still got that skeptic in her that made the first couple of seasons great. And I love that she was just able to jump right back into that. But then when the evidence is there, she kind of turns the corner a bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, I, I like that. I like how we're seeing Duchovny kind of be a little more tortured in a sense in terms of his mentality. Like, oh, I, yeah. I want to believe. He's like, I want to believe. And even this little thing, like, as you progress, like, in the third episode, second episode, where, you know, Scully in the series has that I want to believe poster, he's throwing pencils through that. So it's yep. kind of like a visual look at his mental state of he's trying to poke holes in the theory. He's trying to, you know, or in this case, you know, th- throw things and see what sticks. You know, yeah, and, literally, yeah, literally. that was a huge metaphor there, and and I like the fr- that they built the frustration in him too. That basically everything he gave his life for, yeah, for all these years, might have been just a complete smokescreen to cover up a larger conspiracy. Which, again, bravo for them for for rolling the dice on that. Instead, they could have gone and also ran. They ca- they could have given us just you know a regular X file story, which would have been fine. But they're like, you know what? Let's just try something and see if it works. We've got six episodes, and now instead of people going, well, it's a good thing this is going to be over after six episodes, people are going, I want more than six episodes of this. <laughs> right. Well, the only fear I have is that as the show progresses uh, towards its, its remaining episodes in the season, I don't know if this is just going to be the one season and they're just going to end it all together. My only fear is that the main story arc and the main twist, there's times where they deviate from it and go after different cases. Yeah. So there's a fear that that main twist they developed in the first episode and the pilot, well, not pilot, but the first episode of the new season. That's kind of a pilot. Yeah. But anyways, there's fear that they can deviate too far from that and that falls by the wayside. 
I agree because you've only since you've only got six episodes, you need to make it count. And we're so halfway have, through pick already. A story, pick a story and stick with it because if you don't, again, you've only got six episodes. I think, like when they brought 24 back, they got, what, 10 episodes, I think? I think so. So if you do that, you've got a little bit of more room to play around and, you know, maybe do some side stuff. This, you, you can't fool around. You need to pick a lane and stick with it. Well, also, and, and one thing I want to, you know, touch on before we give our ratings is... You know, they, the cigarette smoking man, Cig- you know, he's only in one episode so far and they're halfway through the season. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I like how they, at the end of the pilot, they brought him in. We're both saying pilot, the premiere. When they, yeah. when they brought him in and it's like, oh, that's for the old fans right there. And then you don't go back to him. And I guess yeah. like, he's always been that mysterious figure. So I get that. And in a way, I kind of expect it. But at the same time. You're gonna have to bring that in, yeah. Before the before the end of this current run, you're gonna have to bring that back. And like you said, who knows if we're gonna get another season at all? So, and I'm I'm guessing by the ratings, we are okay. We're probably gonna get another run, but is it gonna stick with this? Or are we gonna go off to something else? It's too soon to tell. I think exactly. And with that, we're gonna give our ratings before we move on to our next show in this segment. So I'll have you go first since you are the X Files fans since the beginning what's your rating on this i'm gonna go ahead and give it a seven okay seven alien conspiracies out of ten okay uh i really enjoyed it and i'm still really enjoying it uh i do have the same fear that you do that they're gonna kind of you know veer off the road a little bit and, and not stick to a story that worked in the first episode so i mean that rating could certainly get higher by the finale and i'm sure we'll talk about that again and we'll, we'll wrap this back around around finale time to see what happens. And that could, it could easily jump up to a nine or a 10 for me. Cause I think they've done a really good job so far. Uh, somebody who hasn't watched the show at all. And has only watched the three episodes that are out for the X-Files. All I've watched is the entire show in its entirety. I'm going to give this seven hidden peeping Tom hallways out of 10. <laughs> peeping Tom hallways. Well, when you get to episode three, you'll find out why. All right. Well, that's something to look forward to, and it's very sinful, and I guess we should go right to the next show that's on Monday nights, right after the X-Files, and one that, what, three weeks in a row now we've decided to talk about, and I guess there's a good reason for that, and it's Lucifer. Yeah, and uh, I just want to say, we had Joe Henderson on, we had Leslie and Brandt on, what a way to pretty much kick TV's ass out of the ballpark. Like, they've done a really good job. Like, just from the pilot, even to this week's show, just great. Like, Tom Ellis is fantastic. The chemistry is great. The writing, like Joe said last week, we have a person that specializes in this and that. Different people specialize in different areas, and it shows. And I just want to go on a little bit of a mini rant here. My, My main problem that I've realized in talking to Joe and Leslie and just reading what people are saying online, and mostly the detractors there, people are still not liking the show. I've really grown a hatred. I know hate's a strong word, but I've really grown a hatred for people who will bash a show because of their love for the source material so much that they won't even give the show a chance. And it's obvious that social media, with what they comment on, they obviously haven't watched the show at all. They're just pissed. Oh, it's a procedural. Well, it's more than that, and they do different things. And you know, go back and listen to our interviews with Leslie and Joe, and we'll, you know, you'll hear stuff like that. That's more, and it's great. So honestly, fuck you if you're one of those people. 
Like, honestly, because you're the problem. You're, you don't want to give things a chance. Like, look at us. As much as we bash shows like Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D., we went back and watched them and yep. gave them chances. Yep. You're not even giving the show a chance, and already it's kicking ass in the ratings. It's like, so, it's fuck like, you. It's like not liking a house because you went and saw the framing of the house and went, nope. Nope, this house is going to suck. Yeah. You know, you got to you gotta wait for the walls to get put up. You know, maybe some paint. Put the roof on. Give this show a chance. Is it a procedural? It, yes, it kind of is. But that's kind of like the foundation that the show's laid on. And then you yeah. get everything else that you will love about Lucifer. Especially, I mean, if you're not going to watch for any other reason, watch for Tom Ellis. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's amazing on the show. Lauren German is also amazing as Chloe Decker. I mean, they've the chemistry that they have and the whole back and forth between uh, her and Maze that's going to be going on with Leslie Ann Brandt. I love what they're building there. And just even in two episodes, how this show has just veered off of, even though it's a procedural, veered off of everything else you expect to see in a lot of shows that are out right now. As a matter of fact, Joe Henderson tweeted something the other day where he said... I love that we introduced that our character is bisexual and nobody even batted an eye. Yeah. Nobody cared. And I'm like, you really did. And nobody's and focusing as, on it. And, and as, as, he, as they shouldn't. And as he says in the episode, well, it's called the devil's three away for, for a certain reason. Right. He's the <laughs> devil. Can we not lose sight of that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's great. You know, and the fact that, it, yeah, it's just, it's just phenomenal. And again, time else is, is great in it. And I, what I love is that they, they do harp on the whole free will thing. But also in the second episode, we see what he we, what he looks like without, yes. you know, we see the demon face and it looks awesome. And I want to, you know, talk about this really quick, but the punishment scene with him and Maze. Oh, my God. When you, you want to talk about a jaw dropping moment is awesome. If you're not there yet. Don't worry, we're not going to spoil it for you. But episode two, right towards the end, not quite at the end, but towards the end, is the scene that we're talking about. It's it's unbelievable, and it's diabolical, and it's so what this show is about, and I loved it so much. And they even they already circle back around to something that happened in the pilot at the end of the second episode, yeah. which I love because it's they're already driving the story forward and it's only been two episodes. They're not ignoring stuff that's just happened, and I love that. And what's great, like I said, I want to talk about the chemistry because the chemistry between all the actors is great. The people Lucifer interacts with, whether it's the kid or the therapist, it's just it's great. Like It doesn't skip a beat at all. You know, oh, everybody everybody has their lines, and those lines are great. Like, when he's, he clearly doesn't like children, and so he treats the, the kid like a dog. and just takes, like, this your Barbie? Throws it, and he goes, go fetch, go get it. You know what I love about that, too, is that he doesn't like children. Yeah. But he doesn't deal with it in a mean way, you yeah. know what I mean? He doesn't deal with it like you'd expect the well, devil to deal with it, you know? It's because one thing like their innocence probably creeps them out. Right, know? exactly. And it's the innocence of children that, it, again, it, it's hard to lose sight of this because he's so likable. Yeah. He's still the devil. We got to remember that. He is still the devil. Let Well, a million moms know that already. But, you I mean, he's still the devil. So let's keep that in mind as we watch the show. So certain things that might be weird aren't weird because, yeah, he might be different, but he's still the devil. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's just the way they have it with him 
and just it's just you know the whole him leaving hell it's great it, it's really really great with how he deals with that and again like honestly the, the look that he gives Maze when he says like you know let's go punish people that she gives him that look oh, her look yeah that Ooh. was when she gives him that look and I'm like oh shit she's just ride or die like, it's going <laughs> down yeah but, yeah, that was intense. Well, I mean, the writing's been great. The act has been phenomenal. With that, we'll give our ratings. I'll go first. I'm going to do something, James, we've never done on the show before. Okay. I'm going to give this 11 DVD copies of Hot Tub High School out of 10. Wow. We're going above the scale here. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's very devilish of you, actually. Yes. Let me see. I'm going to actually stick to – I'm going to stick to the norm – because I don't want to do something that we did last week with Legends of Tomorrow. Okay. And this is in no way a reflection of how I feel about the show. I'm going to give it 10 Lucifer coins out of 10. Okay. So, I mean, we, we first time ever last week that we had a double 10 with Legends of Tomorrow. Didn't want to do that again this week, but I did love the show. So you've got the 11. I've got the 10. I still think that's really high praise. Exactly. And that's going to do it for a review of the X-Files and Lucifer. But come next, it's Nerd News, and we got a bunch of stories coming your way. Stay tuned. This is comic book writer Colin Kelly, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's time, you Scarlet Speedsters, that we run around the world and we see what's trending because it's time for what, James? Nerd news! And our first story, well, I'm going to say this right now. This is something that I knew was going to happen. As soon as they had that little, not to say expose, but they had that story, those photos of Grant Gustin and Melissa Benoist together, I'm like, they're obviously going to do a Flash Supergirl crossover. And we got word this week that it is happening. It's actually going to be happening March 28th, where Gustin will be heading to National City. And how appropriate that it happens just a few days after the release of Batman vs. Superman. I honestly did not realize that. Well played, Warner Brothers, and well played, DC Comics. (laughs) Excellent job there. I mean, but I know that all the producers are excited. Greg Berlanti is excited about it. Andrew Kreisberg, they talked to comicbook.com about it. We won't rehash that. Sure that you've already read it. But, I mean, people, I've been watching all over the interwebs, Nick, and I know you have, and say, oh, I want to see this, I want to see that. Can I just say that I don't even care what they do. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, because, I mean, and honestly, I couldn't think of two people on TV better to have a crossover with, outside, of course, the Arrow Flash realm. I mean, outside of that. Because... Flash deals with metahumans. Supergirl deals with aliens and yep. people like that. So it makes sense. And it'll be interesting to see, like, is this going to be some kind of, like, alternate universe? Because remember, if you watch The Flash this week, they go to Earth 2. Mm-hmm. So we find out that maybe... Because a lot of people were talking about, well, how are they going to do this when Superman doesn't exist in Flash's world and stuff like that? Well, honestly, didn't they really say that... Didn't they kind of give hint that Batman existed in the world? That they have an arrow, so that means, yes, the universe itself. It's, it's very difficult because, you know, they have cast a young Kal-El in Supergirl as well. Yeah. So we know, and we've seen, you know, flashes of Superman existing. So, I mean, I think that they just said some of these things in interviews to not tip the cap of this actually happening. But right. I think all of us 
as fans, like you said, knew it was happening the second the photos were released. I think it was a TV Guide photo shoot or something like that. I think so, yeah. The second they were released, it was pretty obvious. And you just saw them together and you're like, this works so much. And if this doesn't happen, I'm going to be upset. And a lot of people don't know this. We'll pull the curtain back on the entertainment history, entertainment industry here. Is that, well, how can a CW show and a CBS show cross over? They're owned by the same company. Yeah. So that's how. Yeah. So there's not a lot of red tape to cut through, but yeah, I'm excited. Simple for answer it. there, you know. There you go. I'm excited to see what they'll do with it. I'm excited to see who they face. What will bring Barry to National City? Like, what will be the reason? It's going to be interesting as all hell. I can't even be let down by this, honestly. It just it doesn't matter to me really what they do. I think anything well, that they do just to get these characters together would be great. Well, honestly, it's because also both shows have been crushing it lately. Yes, like, they have. So it's not like. And that's what I love about it. I love that both of these shows are doing well enough to where it doesn't feel like... Because you know if, if, if at least one of these shows was was not doing well in the ratings, that a lot of people would be talking about... And we'd probably be talking about it as, well, this might just be to save a show or to, to get intrigue in another show. But it's not, you know, it's not the reason. They're doing it because these people mesh well in the same universe or however universe is going to be set in, or Earth, I should say, and... You know, let's do it. Both shows are at, the t- at their pinnacle right now. They're at their peak of ratings. Let's do this now. Like you said, with the whole Batman vs. Superman thing going as well. And I think they're doing it too to kind of offset because, you know, we're going to see Ezra Miller as the Flash yep. in Batman vs. Superman for what we've been hearing and reading. So, in a way, I think it's also a way to kind of combat that as well a little bit. I think that that's part of it too to, to remind people, hey, you know, you could still love Grant Gustin's Barry Allen. He's right over here. Don't worry about that. And I want to take a uh, play off of something that you just you just said about, you know, maybe this is trying to save a show and that's not the case here. Actually, it's not the case for these DC TV shows. It's exactly the opposite. Because remember when they brought Constantine onto Arrow and they just referenced Constantine again this past week on Arrow. It's almost like they're bringing Constantine on Arrow to try and revive Constantine. You know what I mean? It's a I, weird I, thing, you know? I wouldn't go that far, dude. I mean, I know you love Constantine. I know we've talked about it a lot, but I'm at the point now where I just let it go. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's like they, they do things to have the opposite effect of what you would normally expect. I understand, but like Robert Williams said to Matt Damon, James, it's not your fault. You gotta let it go. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm holding out hope. <laughs> Season two of Legends of Tomorrow, I'm holding out hope. Yeah. I, can't, I can't let the dream die. Just like, you know, how many times do we hold out hope that there would be another Justice League cartoon? Well, a, a, a while. I, th- I mean, you know, not only that, but... How long has it been? I mean, a while. It's been a while, but we've also been holding out hope that let's get Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill together. Come on, it needs to happen. And it is, and I'm excited. Because, yes, as James pretty much mentioned, there is going to be a new Justice League cartoon coming in the form of Justice League action, which is going to be pretty much kind of like Teen Titans Go, but with the Justice League. And I think that it's going to be for an older audience, so I think we need to make that distinction. What they're doing, though, is is they're going to run the 11-minute episodes that they do on Teen Titans Go. They're going to use that format, so it's going to be like a double episode with each 30-minute episode, which I think is really smart, because to me, that harkens back to my days of watching the old-school cartoons, the Supermans and the Batmans and the Flash and stuff like that. at the Hall of Justice. That's right. The, not just Super Friends, but of course the Filmation stuff that they did in those 11-minute episodes, stuff like that. I think that 
this is just really a smart move. And Kevin Conroy going to be back to voice Batman for like the millionth year in a row. And Mark Hamill's going to reprise his role as the Joker. And everybody thought that that picture that they posted was about the killing joke. Yeah, but... Which doesn't mean it's not. I I know. They won't be part of that, but... Well, I, that was a that was a troll job right there. I well, love I mean, that. Yeah, James Woods also is like Luther. But let's talk about the real reason why you're really excited is because Diedrich Bader is be playing Booster Gold. Ugh. Booster Gold is your bay. You know what? I I will accept that only because <laughs> of what we're getting <laughs> <laughs> to hear to hear the sweet what? sounds to hear the sweet sounds of Kevin Conroy as the bat again. <laughs> I can let that go. But what if like Booster Gold comes in and just steals the show though? I, hey, I'll own it, man. <laughs> I'll own it. If he comes in to steal the show, I'll be like, you know what? Maybe I was wrong about that booster gold. <laughs> I've done it before. I'm an adult. You know, I, I can admit when I'm wrong if it happens. It doesn't just, happen very often, but it happens. You shouldn't repress those feelings any deeper, man. You got to let them out. And if, and, if, and if he gets it, if he nails it, knocks it out of the park, I'm, I'm okay. I, yeah. I'm not going to be mad at it because all I want is good stuff. And I don't, I don't need to hate booster gold. I just... Haven't really enjoyed anything that he's been in. And that's not my fault. I know people love Booster Gold. I just don't happen to. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you want to mention how long it's been since the last time we had Justice League show. The last one that ran, it ran from 2001 to 2004. Yeah, it's so, been a while. I mean, I know we've had Netflix, but that's not the same. That's not the same. That's not the same at all. And, you know, speaking of things that aren't the same, of course, back in the 90s, you know, Rita Repulsa was pretty much on television, and she had a role in the movies as well. But now she's being rebooted, James. That's right, and the odds are definitely going to be in the favor of Power Rangers fans on this one, I think. Because Elizabeth Banks, yes, every trinket from the Hunger Games, is going to be playing Rita Repulsa. And I know you're the bigger Power Rangers fan, Nick, but as somebody from the outside looking in, in a way, I look at this as a match made in heaven to me, this is a perfect person to play Rita Repulsa. Well, I think it's a perfect time. And if this doesn't show the strength of Power Rangers, I mean, outside of, of course, Boom Studios' number one issue of their new series, which now has over 75,000 pre-orders, which, of course, now is their most and highest pre-ordered book of all time oh, no in their history. They needed this to have some of Elizabeth Banks' stature. And here's why. It's because everybody's playing the Rangers are a bunch of no-names. You know, and, and I do have to say that to, to be mean. But No, you're yeah, right. Go to IMDb. You're right. They're they're unknowns. So I need somebody in to play Rita Repulsa. It's going to be interesting to see how, how she plays it. Because, you know, last time we saw Rita, it was... I'm not going to lie. It was a lot of overacting. But yes, I mean, you know. But that's Elizabeth Banks. When she gets to be over the top, she's awesome. Right. But I mean, we'll see how she pulls it off. Now, my only fear is that she doesn't go Maleficent, like Angelina Jolie tone. I want her to be kind of outlandish and over the top because, yeah. I mean, that's Rita. That's Rita I grew up with. That's Power Rangers in general. I totally that's agree. Over the top. You have teenagers, you know, driving mechs of yeah. their shape like animals. It needs to be over the top. It needs to be cheesy. It needs to be over the top. It needs to be exactly what you said it was going to be. And as cheesy as, you know, I kind of thought the Power Rangers movie was because I was a little bit older. I, it 
it's what it needed to be. And I've never said anything but that. For the audience that you're going for, that's exactly what it needs to be. And I think this is the perfect casting because this is who they need her to be. They need her to be over the top. They need her to be cheesy. And I think if they were going to do, like you said, the whole Maleficent thing, which I could see that they might have tried to go that route, especially after that dark Power Rangers fan film came out. I don't think they're going to do that because of this casting. If they'd cast somebody that was more along the veins of Angelina Jolie, I would agree with you being scared about that. But I think this shows you that they're going to be going on the right track. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the Power Rangers movie, the first one I loved, Power Rangers Turbo, oh, not so great. Like, I, I wasn't a fan of Power Rangers Turbo. Uh, well, as the newer stuff started to come out, I think well, that... Uh, well, me, you know. Power, I started getting out of Power Rangers, like, I think, after Turbo. Like, I, I, I believe that's when I got out. Actually, that was, because that was, like, the last Zord. I used to buy all those... Had my parents buy me all those Zords growing up, and that was, like, the last giant Megazord I used to... Or I got. But, I mean, I'm excited about it, man. I'm really excited about to see what they what she does with the character... I'm excited about what they're doing. Shit, I'm excited we're just getting a new Power Rangers thing in general. And I'm glad that these comics are coming out. And, hey, this makes sense now with you know the comics coming out and then you got the movie. Yep. It makes a lot of sense, especially because what we're seeing, at least what I'm looking at right now, with the issue one cover, Rita is holding the Green Ranger helmet. So we'll see what happens with that. But I'll move to the world of gaming, James, and now... Here's the thing. We, we both play video games. We can. I know I'm able to do so more than you because I don't have a kid. Of course. So when I, we saw the story that tabletop games pass video games on Kickstarter, that's kind of shocking. Yeah, I mean, the numbers are pretty clear. I mean, and, and to, I'm going to quote the uh, ICV2 article here right now. In 2015, more than 978,000 backers pledged over $144.4 million on Kickstarter to gaming projects alone. That number is pretty staggering. Yeah. But then you look at the tabletop games, they raised eighty-eight, just over $88 million of that with over 500,000 backers. Yeah. That's tabletop games, guys. That's tabletop. And I think here's the reason why we're seeing that. Now, again, we video games are, of course, the big thing. But me personally, I don't like playing video games with other people. Like no, I don't, don't like either. I don't like playing against people, you know, with or whatever. But tabletop is different. I think tabletop offers a bonding experience that playing video games doesn't. And with tabletop, even with stuff like card games, the fun. Like I played Magic and I played Yu-Gi-Oh when I was in high school. Yep. My funnest memories were building my decks and getting cards and just building and, and, and crafting. And, you know, I had a fire and water deck and magic that I literally murdered people with. And that was a proud moment for me. But I had a lot of friendships that grew through those games, even, you know, stuff like D&D and tabletop. You know, I used to watch my friends play that when I was in college and it was fun. Friday nights, getting drunk on pizza, watching two of my friends out of like the, the six of us go after one of each other's throats because one threw each other, one threw the other into a portal and banished it to a land far, far wow. away <laughs> is fucking hilarious on a Friday night when you're drunk on pizza and alcohol. I'm going to tell the world something that I've, I haven't even told you yet. Huh? And not a lot of people know this about me. And this does relate to the story. I promise in my younger days, I cr- actually made 
two tabletop games from scratch. Did you? One was professional wrestling. I okay. put a professional, just index cards, made them all myself, you know, put all the old WWF guys in there and just made them, my cousin and I, we just made it from scratch. And then I created a dodgeball game as well, a tabletop <laughs> game. And it was, you know, dice based, you know, kind of like D&D, something like that. Yeah. And I just made these games and, you know, you invite your friends over and they, they like you said, you, you play and it's fun. And <laughs> I get the is camaraderie it, it, of the, of the gaming. Is it like if you, you must roll a nine or else the fat kid eliminates you from the dodgeball well, game? Well, it was kind of like, remember prison dodgeball when you went to school? Yeah. It was kind of like that. It was, it was based on a prison, like as you roll a certain number, you, you, they catch your ball and you're out. But it was based on a rating system where if, where if somebody had a really strong arm, you'd have to roll like only a six. You could catch their <laughs> ball and stuff like that. You it was must, very complicated. You must roll a 10 or else like little Timmy's parents will sue the school. And it depended on where you put your characters on the board as to how much they could be knocked out of the game. So it was really involved. I didn't screw around, man. Okay, here's, I it was in this. the details. I got to ask you with the wrestling tabletop games did you talk like jr oh absolutely <laughs> absolutely oh my god oh my god king it's an 11 it's an 11 it's an 11 oh my god king he just rolled a six that means it's a pile driver king he, he just, just he just driver. he just got piled drive by office supplies my god met my your, god having met your cousin i'm just it's actually a different cousin is it? That you haven't even met yet. He's actually oh. in the Navy. He's in England right now in the Navy. Totally oh. different cousin. Hi, Luke, if you're listening. Well <laughs> done, my friend. We did we did some great things back in the day. But, I mean, that, that's just awesome. Like I said, you, you build things. You build camaraderies. It's not surprising to see this happen. You know, if it wasn't so goddamn expensive, I might still be doing it. You know? Right, exactly. I mean, remember when we were at Tidewater Comic Con, we had a couple of people that created tabletop games yeah. and card games that came and sat down with us that were really interesting. I've still got the cards sitting okay. right over there, you know? So, I mean, you could see why people want to do this. And D&D is still hugely popular, so why not keep creating these games? And all I know is if you walk into Bob's at Fantasy Escape on Virginia Beach on a Saturday, oh, it's yeah. packed every oh, time yeah. they have a tournament. Oh, yeah, you got tournaments every weekend. But that's going to do it for this week in Nerd News. But coming up next, we have Rick Remender coming on the show. He's going to talk about his series, Low. So stay tuned. We're diving deep in the sea with Rick Remender coming up next on Down Nerdy. Hey, what's up? This is Brandon Champ Robinson, the director of the Harley Quinn web series. And you're listening to the coolest nerds ever on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Well, in the world of comics, you can get a lot of post-apocalyptic stories and sci-fi stories, but I think there was one that Nick and I agree really kind of stood out, and that's Low from Image Comics. We are just so happy to have comic book writer extraordinaire Rick Remender on the show this week. Rick, how you doing? I'm great. I'm great. How are you guys doing? We're doing good, Rick. So when you're not writing, because you know you have a lot of projects that you do, what are some things you do to kind of like break away from the comic book world in a sense and just focus on Rick? I've been getting back into hiking um, so that I can get away from everything and disconnect from the endless stream of emails and texts and twamps and wamps and damps and all the, the fucking noise that comes in through the uh, computer box. And I, uh, you know, spend about two, maybe three hours a day with my kids if I can. And, you know, we do homework and, and do arts and crafts and stuff. And that's really about it. You know, I, I make it out to see uh, a, a, f- a film with friends once in a while, but the rest of the time I'm 
I'm kind of dialed into, you know, making making the comic books for the uh, the humans. <laughs> well, it definitely it definitely shows because you've got so many great works. And actually, before we even started reading uh, the first issue of Low, you kind of mentioned that it was a story you wanted to tell, and it was very personal for you. And for anyone who might not know, give them a little bit of insight into that and why the story was so important for you to tell at the time you were making it. Well, I think beyond the fun of, you know, the trappings of, of, you know, a bunch of people trapped in the bottom of the ocean and, and humans haven't been on the surface of, of Earth for, you know, tens of thousands of years now, um, this is a point in time when the, the sun is prematurely expanding and, and mankind has no other hope. Um, that was a premise I cooked up and, and Greg Tokini and I had decided we would investigate going all the way back to around 2009 when we were working on a book called Last Days, or um, yeah, uh, The Last Days of American Crime. And I, I, I kind of sat on it for a while and it was exciting and it, it was fun and had a lot of opportunities for Greg to do the kind of visuals that, that uh, you know, I wanted to see him doing. And uh, But it, it wasn't until I... I started getting into therapy and dealing with my, uh, my, my pessimistic and, and, uh, and, and potentially negative uh, <laughs> point of view about things that I recognized that there was an opportunity here to really focus in on um, a, a character who sort of reflected that optimism and would be somebody who I could channel that through, um, you know, and, and, and Stel Kane, the mother of the, uh, of the family, we get a character who is, basically um, up against uh, an insurmountable wall of bullshit with not a lot of, uh, you know, prospects of, of things turning around. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't give up and she remains optimistic. And beyond that, it was, it was figuring out, you know, writing a, a realistic version of why and how and, and what the upshot and downshot of all that can be. And so as I was developing it, that sort of was the reason. That was the trigger for me where I was like, okay, I do want to, I do want to, I want to get moving on this. You know, you develop so many of these things, it's hard to kind of pick which one you want to sink into. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that for me, that was really where I realized that I wanted to, you know, my own mother is, uh, you know, there's a, she's sort of a blind optimist. And <laughs> there's pros and cons to that as well. Oh, yeah. That was why I, I, I wanted to turn the character, you know, I wanted to focus on a mother. I wanted to focus on the mother who, uh, of a family in a desperate situation to sort of reflect on, you know, my, my own mom in a little bit, but uh, and, and my own grappling with the, uh, the intellectual process of accepting that a pessimistic point of view can oftentimes result in a pessimistic reality and that an optimistic point of view can oftentimes end in an optimistic and, uh, and, and a, a brighter tomorrow. And it all sounds so cheese dick when I say it, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was sort of the beauty of forcing myself to do it. was like, well, this is a legitimate and real thing, and I think this is something that other people can identify with. And, and, mm-hmm. um, and, it's, not, and, it's, and it's not hiding behind, you know, sn- gritting, snarled teeth or tough people. It's, it's humans and something that, you know. It's tough as a, as a, as a, as a, you know, it's tough to write about this stuff. It's tough to be, oh, yeah. you know, to dig, dig in it and, and try and, and have something to say. Well, yeah, I mean, somebody who is a pessimist for part of the, the first volume of the series is, of course, Merrick, the son. And, you know, he, he has such a, a unique arc in terms of both his redemption and his fall. And what I loved about Rick was that it was just very simple. Like, it wasn't over complicated at all. Uh, as a writer, what makes an arc and a character's development both interesting to write and also to read for yourself? Well, I mean, 
I go back and forth. Sometimes I think that it's, it's, you know, obviously it can't be predictable. I mean, when you start with somebody like where we started with Merrick, I didn't want people to know where we were going to go with it. Um, you know, I didn't want his arc to be telegraphed. And I think that's ultimately the most important part, because if you know the road you're taking with a character, I think that it's, it's almost, it's redundant to even read about it. Once I figure out the writer's intention, if I'm not surprised, I, I sort of, I, I tend to drift and lose interest. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of, in terms of Merrick, I, I, I really wanted to set this up as a realistic uh, scenario where he had justifiable reasons for sort of sinking into the toilet bowl that he sunk into. And in terms of the arc and the build and, and ultimately what I wanted to say about that and, uh, uh, and how I wanted to say it, it really came down to figuring out what I wanted to say first, which was very simply, you know, you, 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 you probably, you, you can make most of your, your dreams come true. You can do most anything, but nobody said that it would be easy or without great consequence or sacrifice to other aspects. And that's sort of the up and the down of the philosophy and the ideology that we're, we're talking about here in the series. And so Merrick became kind of a, um, Merrick was a, 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 you know, a big part of defining that, yes, optimism, yes, positivity, yes, you can make it happen, but it's not going it, to be easy and, and that there, there might be some, some consequences and hardships and other facets of your life to acquire that one thing. Yeah, definitely, and I think the same can be said for uh, Tajo and Della, who are Estelle's uh, other two children. And even though they had very tragic stories after they were separated from their parents, they seemed to find the inner strength as the years went on. So how did you decide on the journeys each of those characters would take and leading up to the conclusion of Issue 10? Well, ultimately, with you know, when you're, when you're developing a Bible, you want each character to kind of live in their own space and have their own arc. And when we met, uh, when we met Teho and Della as kids, Teho is sort of this you know, shy and, and insecure kid, and, and Della is very confident. You, know, you see, mm-hmm. even when Rome and his dirtbag pirates attack them, she comes out with a harpoon gun. She's, she's very, very strong. Um, and ultimately, you want to then put them through a process that uh, shows... A, I think that any any anybody can become anything under certain circumstances. You know, our our, our core of who we are um, might not might not be gone forever, but but if you go through any one thing that's hard enough, long enough, and it it will have it will have an effect on you and, and change you on the other side of it. So I wanted to take them from the place where we first saw them and who they were, and and I wanted to then develop it in in ways that um, were hopefully interesting. And I think with you know with that. Obviously, see that strength is still there, but she—it's been twisted, and she's she's quite damaged, and and a lot of a lot of you know she's very hateful. She's not mm-hmm. she's not a great she's not a great person. And I think ten years in Volden, where you know hope is outlawed and art and literature are outlawed, and all of the things that she's been sort of you know inundated with, can have you know ultimately that kind of an effect. So you still see the strength of her character, but you see the new sort of the new wrinkles added by her circumstance. And in, in Tahoe you see somebody who was um subjected to, you know, mental manipulation and uh, almost suffered from a Stockholm like syndrome being, you know, raised by her captors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um eventually kind of rise up, but even though she's done that, she's also committed a pretty, you know, heinous atrocity. And, you know, justifiable or not, you know, uh, it's an atrocity what she did at the end of the, uh-huh. at the end of this first trade. 
Uh, and then you get you get a whole kind of you get a, a very you know interesting bag of of neuroses, and you get somebody who's likable and who's been through hell, and has had her you know her her brain twisted up, but ultimately has done some things that while she had a rise and while she had she ascended and, and had a, a great beat there at the end, it was also tinged with vengefulness and and uh, something ugly, which you know I think is important in terms of keeping things. Um, realistic for character motivations and that's kind of that's kind of speaking to your question that's kind of what you always come back to is once you've set these people up how would they actually respond how would somebody who had been in, in Tejo's situation like uh with 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 Ron in the third city how would she actually respond to now having the the suit and the ability to you know uh, uh acquire sweet vengeance on her captors and you know, I think that I think a lot of us might do what she did. And, you know, I don't know. So, and, and I like that you talked about your role in the Third City because throughout the series, we see a variety of different factions and various groups of beings. So, which one was your most favorite to write, and why? I think that the debauchery of the Pirate City. I could have stayed there for a while. Um, I realized when I got there that writing the pirates dialogue and all of the dirt bags hanging around town and all that various uh, debauchery was, was not only fun to write, but uh, really wonderful to see Greg come up with these sort of mutated aquatic versions of, of creatures down there. And um, so that, that city was one where I, I knew in the outline that we were going to be out of there by the sixth issue, but I didn't want to be, <laughs> I kind of wanted to keep writing that for a while, but they've all, you know, they all scratch different itches. We've got some, some really fun stuff planned for what's topside on the surface. And we, uh, you know, uh, we, we haven't seen the last of Salas or Volden. So, you know, the two domes that are left with the remains of humanity are still down there. And, uh, they're pretty diametrically opposed places. And so, uh, you know, with what's coming up and what we have planned, all of the pieces that we've set up will definitely, uh, definitely collide at some point. We see Stell in Volume 2 in one of the issues have kind of her fall from grace where she is kind of drifting away from her normal optimistic personality. And then we see that sort of change in one particular instance when she's when she's letting the uh, the creature feed off of her and then she sort of has that thing click what made you decide to give her that moment of vulnerability in the series after having such a strong opt- optimism with everything falling out down around her well i think that it was sort of symbolic of of you know of her arc and one of the things in her arc is yes she's she's remained hopeful and optimistic and trying to push forward in in this bleak in this in the face of all this shit that has been dumped in front of her but ultimately she was always kind of doing it for other people and that's one aspect that i i find really fascinating uh, about um you know uh, your human motivation is it is it any healthier you don't want to be a self-obsessed and only worry about you right. know, your self-preservation but at the same time there's not a lot to be gained from life if everything you're doing is for the benefit of other people and you just keep doing that it's altruistic and it's good but even that taken to the extent that Stell took it when the more i developed her the more i recognized that it was kind of a it was kind of a fault and that was one of the reasons i wanted to take so much away from her so that she had to look and see, okay, well, it's all falling apart now. Um, you know, she's really in the in, in in the darkest chapter of her life, and what what is it that would keep her moving forward? And um, 
I just thought it was kind of simple and clean that her big revelation there was was actually doing it for herself, that she might, you know, not just humanity and not just the hope of her family and not just any of her companions, but the hope that she might one day be in a, you know, uh, in, a, in a better place and that there might be a future for mankind. Of course, talking to Rick Remender of Image Comics is low. So, Rick, here's a question for you. This whole book and the series deals with a lot of underwater things and stuff like that. If you were to go on a deep sea, like a really, really deep sea diving adventure, what's the one thing you would love to see on your adventure? I mean, if, are we talking about things that exist? Anything. <laughs> any, 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 anything. Point. I mean, if, if we're talking about something that exists, I mean, uh, I, you know, I've gone, I've gone uh, on, on a lot of, you know, various uh, uh, scuba experts, not, you know, not, not deep diving, but snorkeling actually. In in uh, in various parts of Mexico and on the coast here in California, um, and Hawaii, and uh, you know the reefs and the fish are always nice. I, I you know I, I guess what would be the craziest thing to see? I mean you know a, a whale. I think I've added that into a couple of things in Tokyo goes down low. You know I think that that would to actually see a whale uh, swimming by, not just to see it from a boat, but to see it from the water and underwater. That would that would be pretty amazing. I, I, I imagine. Oh yeah, I mean, I think for myself, it would probably be like if I went on like a very you know deep, dark adventure in the water. I probably the whole Titanic thing. I think is just something that for me myself just catches my something I would love to see. You know? Yeah, definitely to find like a wreckage or something. I think would be really cool. Yeah, for sure, and you know maybe something that hadn't been discovered before. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Now, if you've read issue ten, you know that not only do Tejo and Della reunite, but they also know that their mother is alive. So when issue eleven starts, the sisters are actually going to go back to a place. It's going to be very difficult for them. So what can readers expect when we start the new arc? Well, we're going to keep with the, the we've been doing since issue uh, seven, we've been jumping back and forth between the sisters and, and Stell and her, and her crew of Zem and Mertali. And it's an experiment in, in structure that I, I haven't done before um, where you've got these two trains on two different journeys and uh, you, you build them sort of, you know, ping-ponging back and forth across the table. And so we will be building uh, both stories concurrently, as we have been. For um, Tejo and Della, we, we see them return to Salas for uh, a number of reasons, and uh, without divulging much of what happens there, it's, uh, it's an opportunity. It's a character-building issue, which, you know, um, those are my favorite to write. I think that, you know, the action is all, all great and fun, but the action is just a byproduct of character if it's done right. And uh, uh, this is an opportunity to see the true reunion of, of Della and Tejo. And we get to see these two sisters, uh, you know, go home. And that has uh, some repercussions and some, some, they meet somebody who joins them. Who, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that out. But, um, and then <laughs> the, the issue after that, we, we bounce back to Stell and her team as they, f- have, they finally have made it to the surface which is the fun sort of, you know, exploration part of the adventuring. And, and, you know, one of my favorite parts of doing a book like this is, is, you know, building up the, the, the mysticism of a place and then finally getting there. And, 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 you know, hopefully I know that, you know, I've seen the issue, Greg's visuals are just fantastic. Um, and then some of the, the things that are up there, we get to explore that and we've built, built some stuff there. Um, and then there are some really big surprises in store for for what's on the surface as well. So, 
Yeah, that's that's where we're headed right now. And uh, issue eleven uh, is the is, a, is like I said the Della and Tejo issue. And in twelve, we bounce back to Stella, and we finally get to see what's awaiting our our, our happy team on the surface. I'm glad you mentioned low issue eleven because it's going to be available February tenth. Volumes one and two are available now. So Rick, well, before we get you out here, uh, where can people hit you up on social media, man? I, I use Instagram once in a while, and it's just Rick Remender on Instagram. Um, but uh, Twitter is the only thing that I still regularly check and remember to check. Um, I find that it can be such a, a black hole of distraction if I let it. You know? Oh, yeah. So I've, oh, yeah. I've, I've really tried to limit how much I let myself do that stuff anymore because in an afternoon, you realize you've accomplished very, very little, and you've, you're still exhausted by it because you've still been reading and processing information, but mm-hmm. it's all useless information. So mostly, uh, well, mostly you can find my, uh, uh, my jabberings on the, uh, on the Twitter at Remender or uh, rickremender.com where I'll uh, update interviews and uh, preview art and fun stuff like that. Excellent. Well, of course, like Nick said, low issue 11 going to be available February the 10th. Volumes 1 and 2 are available now. And you heard Rick Remender actually mention Tokyo Ghost, which we reviewed on the show, too. It's excellent. Him and Sean Gordon Murphy doing fantastic job on that. Go pick that up as well. And just read all the ramblings, as he said, of Rick Remender. Rick, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Yeah, thanks, guys. This was great. Thank you. Well, Nick, we were talking to Rick Remender before the interview started, and he said, you know, he hasn't really done a lot of these. So, I mean, I'm really happy that, you know, he, he was one of the ones, we were one of the ones that he chose because, I mean, to tell people about Low and the, like you said, the optimism that was there, it's just such a unique and different series, and it was such an easy read. Oh, yeah, and like I said, it, it grabs you. Like, it doesn't lag at all, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, we read both the trades, and it's just it's it's just an amazing book. The art is fantastic, and, you know, there's a lot of parts where at the end of each issue when you're reading it in the trade especially, where you're like, whoa, this thing just happened, and then you're like, and then you're like, oh, I, I can't wait for the next issue. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I have the trade. So next, yeah, issue, exactly. so next page over. <laughs> it's right here, so just swipe left and you're good to go. No, I mean, it was just, I mean, there were so many vibes that you got while reading it, too. I mean, I you, you get the Game of Thrones vibe because there's such brutality there and so much stuff crashing around one character. And then you got a couple of different vibes reading it as well. Well, yeah, especially the whole optimism thing and the whole, you know, pessimistic identity and, and worldview and, you know... This is something I think a lot of people, especially I think I'll say this right now, especially people who are like in their like just out of college. Like if you're just out of college up to like your mid 30s, it's going to hit really hard with you because there's going to be times you're like in your midlife crisis mode kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And you read this and you're like, it it hits on so many levels. Like in my own life, this this book hit on a lot of levels in terms of my mindset and everything else the past over the past few years and it's just to read this is just a breath of fresh air because you're like we read a lot of comics each week and a lot of books but to, to read a, a series like low where it literally speaks to you and it literally you know mm-hmm. shows you like hey there are other people who have these types of mindsets you're not alone and you know here's how you can kind of get through it and here's you know, it, it's just it's just phenomenal in all aspects of that, and it hits you really, really hard, both mentally, I think, emotionally as well. And the thing things this woman goes through, the things that Stella oh goes God. through. Oh, I mean, just through the first ten issues, that's it's mind blowing. That's the first ten. The first like fifth, like five pages in. Yeah, like her whole world gets yeah. torn apart in five 
pages. In five pages. And we don't. We didn't want to go into. We didn't want to go into too much details of what happens because the shock value is that high. Yeah. We want you to read this, and we want you to experience what we experienced with that shock value because that is part of what makes this series great. I think. Oh, exactly, man. Exactly. That's going to do it for this week's edition. Of the Down Nerdy Podcast. Again, we want to thank Rick Remender from Image Comics as low for coming on this week and talking to us about the book. Remember, it comes out in February, of course. And then, of course, volumes one and two are available right now. And hey, we're all over the internet. So hit us up on Facebook.com slash Down Nerdy. We have our theme days there, our cosplay Tuesdays, our new comic book days, and stuff like that, and so on and so forth. We're also on Twitter as well. We're at downnerd 757 on Twitter, and also I'm at Merkel One Arm, Mr. Witham. I'm at James Ace Witham. As a matter of fact, you can also find us online, too, if you didn't know that, downnerdypodcast.com. We do two different comic book reviews on there each week that we have not done on the show, so this is different stuff, and there's even an archive of past reviews that we've done, so if there's something you were picking up in maybe a dollar bin at your favorite comic book shop, maybe you'll find a review on there like, hey, is it even worth the buck? Should I get this? We've got reviews on there. You can find out all about what's going on on each week's show. There's a This Week section. The new podcast will play right there for you, and then you could actually read, oh, they're going to review that coming up. Well, I'm definitely sticking around. Not that you wouldn't anyway, but at least you'll know what's coming up and buy the comics that we're talking about on the show as well. Exactly with that. I'll leave you with this. As I do every week, everybody, practice safe comic book reading, always bag and board your comics.